After a month-long summer vacation, the Nerd Coliseum is back for season two. And this time, we're going even further into the past as some of the top movies from the 1980s step into the arena to battle it out for the number one spot. Who will come out on top? Well, jump into those DeLoreans and prepare to go 88 miles an hour as we go back to the past to relive some classic and beloved films from one of the greatest decades in cinema history. This is Season 2 on the Nerd Coliseum. I'm Kristen. And I'm Frankie. Welcome back to the Nerd Coliseum. I hope you missed us just as much as we missed you. Thank you for your patience as we took the month of July to spend some time with family as well as get moved into our new home. If this is your first time joining us, welcome! We are the Nerd Coliseum, a podcast where movies, TV, video games, or anything pop culture battles it out for the number one spot in our countdowns. Our first season was a huge success as we took a look at the top eight movies from the year 1999, a hidden gem of year for movies. This season, we wanted to go even further into the past and take a look at some of the greatest films from the 1980s. So, Kristen, why don't we remind everyone how our tournament works? Good idea. For season two, we will be pitting eight movies from the 1980s against each other until only one movie is left standing. This means that there will be seven separate rounds of games where the movies will face off against each other one-on-one. In our first tournament, each movie faced off with three different categories. This season, we decided to add one more. So, each face-off will be judged on four unique criteria that have been randomly selected by our spinning wheel of chance. We will use these criteria to award points to films. The movie with the most points in the end wins the game round and moves forward in the tournament. Since there are four categories this time, there will be a chance that movies will be tied by the end of the game. If this happens, we will have a bonus round where the winner will take all in a final category. Just like our criteria, our movie contenders have been paired off for battle using a random generator. Our winners will be decided based on the combination of chance and facts, like awards, box office numbers, critic and audience scores, pop culture impact, along with any resources we the host may deem appropriate. But everything will be in regards to the unique criteria that has been selected by chance for the battle. So, unlike other podcasts, the Nerd Coliseum doesn't rely heavily on the personal opinion of its host. Alright, so now that we got that out of the way, I think it's time to get to what everyone is anxious to know. What movies did we choose to contend in our 1980s tournament? The 1980s truly has tons and tons of classic and unforgettable films, and we're sure each of you have your own favorite out there. So... What we decided to do this season is a little different than last season. So last season, we picked the top eight grossing films of 1999. However, when we looked at the top eight grossing movies of the 1980s for season two, four of those were Star Wars and Indiana Jones films. So there really wasn't that much variety. What we decided to do is to go with the top four highest grossing films, and then for the last four... Frankie and I decided it would be fun if him and I both chose some wild card movies to throw into the running that are either our personal favorites or movies we thought would be good competition. Hopefully you like our choices. 
Before we get to our wildcard picks, let's take a look at the top four highest grossing films from the 1980s. This highest grossing list is only from the theatrical releases in the United States during their initial release and does not include international or any re-releases. The fourth highest grossing film from the decade was Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, released in 1981. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? The third highest grossing film was Tim Burton's Batman from the year 1989. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Next, we have Star Wars Return of the Jedi, released in 1983. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. And the highest grossing film of the 1980s was Steven Spielberg's E.T. Extraterrestrial, released in 1982. E.T. Phone home. Those are going to be great heavy hitter contenders for our tournament. So, what about the movies Frankie and I thought might be good wildcard contenders to possibly knock out some of these big guys? Frankie, why don't you tell us about your choices? Alright, so there's a lot of movies from the 1980s, and maybe Kristen's going to go into a little bit more specifics than I'm going to go into. But it was just so hard to choose, so I chose some that kind of gave me the warm and fuzzies, the good childhood memories, the ones that I thought were really scary and really funny. So the one that I picked, one of my favorite comedies... Ghostbusters, released in 1984, and one of the greatest horror films of all time, The Thing, released in 1982. Excellent choices. I'm glad you went with Ghostbusters. I can't imagine us doing a tournament without them. All right, so what about you, Kristen? Tell us about your choices. Well, anyone who knows me will know what my all-time favorite movie is, and it is a movie from the 1980s. So I could not do a 1980s tournament without including Back to the Future from 1985. My second pick was a little more difficult. Beetlejuice, which was released in 1988, was on my mind for a long time. I absolutely love that film. However, I thought it maybe would fit better in a different tournament, maybe a Halloween one in October. Some other movies came to mind like The Goonies, The Labyrinth, Big, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and War Games. However, I actually landed on another Matthew Broderick movie. The best Matthew Broderick movie. A movie that withstands the test of time and still has one of the coolest main characters around. That's right, I'm talking about John Hughes's 1986 classic, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's a good idea to throw in more of a fun comedy in the mix here with all these other big blockbuster films. But now that we know the individual contenders, let's see who has been pitted to face off one-on-one by our random generator. This is gonna be good. Alright, so looks like our very first game is going to be two of our wildcard picks. Game one is going to be the supernatural comedy Ghostbusters versus the rebellious school skipper in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This matchup will be the sole focus of this episode you're listening to right now. Two of our favorites right off the bat. Man, this tournament is going to be really difficult as always. Well, let's see who is going to be competing in the next game. Game two will see the DeLorean versus X-Wings as Back to the Future goes up against Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Whoa, what are the odds? Game three is going to be an alien battle as The Thing tries to take down the blockbuster behemoth E.T. Extraterrestrial. 
And the last game of the first bracket of our tournament, we'll see the Caped Crusader go against the Archaeological Crusader in Batman versus Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I love our wacky concept. Where else can you see such strange matchups, huh? That's what makes it so much fun. (laughs) All right, so let's get right into it. We have a long way to go to see who will come out on top, so let's begin with today's episode. Welcome to Game 1 of Season 2, Ghostbusters versus Ferris Bueller's Day Off. If there's something weird in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! On one side of the Coliseum, we have the 1984 American classic supernatural comedy Ghostbusters, written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and directed by Ivan Rettman. The film follows three parapsychology professors Peter Vinkman, Ray Stantz, and Egon Spangler, played by Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis, respectively. After being fired from Columbia University for spending too much money and time trying to prove the existence of ghosts, the trio decide to start their own paranormal investigation and elimination service out of an old disused firehouse and call themselves, you guessed it, Ghostbusters. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters! Ghostbusters. After recruiting a fourth member, Winston Zeddemore, played by Ernie Hudson, and responding to a call from Dana Barrett, played by Sir Gurney Weaver, they stumble upon a demonic conspiracy to release the dead back onto the earth, through a gateway atop a strangely designed apartment building. On the other side, we have Ferris Bueller's Day Off, written and directed by John Hughes. This classic comedy film follows the coolest kid in school, Ferris Bueller, played by Matthew Broderick, as he decides to fake being ill to skip school one more time before graduation. Bueller? 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 Bueller. He convinces his hypochondriac friend Cameron Fry, played by Alan Ruck, to borrow his father's prized 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider in order to break Ferris's girlfriend Salone Peterson, played by Mia Sarah, out of school so that they can spend the day in the streets of Chicago. Convinced Ferris is faking, the dean of students at the school, Ed Rooney, played by Jeffrey Jones, is close on Ferris' heels in order to catch him in the act. These are definitely two very, very different movies. I know. And two films that I absolutely love for different reasons. Well, it's all going to come down to what categories these films are going to compete in. So, I think it's time. Yes. Bring out the spinning wheel of chance! The first category will be Originality. The second category will be Soundtrack. Third category will be Moral Lesson Value. Ooh, that's one of my favorite categories. It really makes you think about the film in a much deeper way. Yes, we get to channel our literary analysis skills. Ooh, let's spin for our fourth category. And the last category will be 
cast and ensemble performance. Well, we don't make this easy on ourselves, do we? No, we do not. Well, there's no time to waste. Let's get right into it with our first category, originality. How original is Ghostbusters? Has there been a film before about capturing ghosts as easily and efficiently as people catch rodents? Well, from our research, this seems like a pretty original idea. This took the ghost and paranormal activity genre and ramped it up in a realistic and comedic way without it being too ridiculous. The horror elements within the movie were not cheesy, but felt natural in the world created within the film in New York City. Dan Aykroyd, one of the writers of the film, firmly believes in ghosts. In fact, the Aykroyd family has been doing seances for generations at their farmhouse in Ontario. His great-grandfather was a renowned spiritualist, and his grandfather investigated the possibility of contacting the dead via radio. Even his father was a well-regarded author on the history of ghosts. Aykroyd's inspiration did not come from any previous film or television series, but from his own real-world experiences with the supernatural, which makes it all the more interesting and original to watch. On top of the overall story being original, look at the original creations made just for the world inside the film. I'm talking about the proton packs, which are high-tech, nuclear-powered pieces of equipment used to capture and contain ghosts. These proton packs were capable of accelerating a stream of protons inside the body of the pack and shooting them out the particle thrower at its end. This is accomplished by what is known as the psychotron, which flips the particles continuously as they are moved around the electrodes. I sound smarter already just by reading that. Yeah, the science behind it is well above my scientific knowledge. But it's an excellent point that the movie created an original device with realistic science behind it. I love it. Is there anything like that in our world, I wonder? Well, the most powerful particle accelerator in the world is the Large Hadron Collider, LHC, beneath the border between France and Switzerland. It took 10 years to build and lies inside 17 miles of tunnels, hundreds of feet underground. And Dr. Egon Spangler figured out a way to put it in a backpack in order to capture ghosts. Nice. Why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. The magic of cinema. It may or may not surprise many of you, but Ferris Bueller's Day Off was written in less than a week. Side note, it was written so fast in anticipation of an impending writer's strike. But John Hughes has a knack for creating films for a generation of teenagers and young adults, including Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. And something to notice about his films is the story isn't really that important to him. It's not about the story, it's about the characters. Many of the characters were inspired not by previous characters, but real-life friends of John Hughes in his childhood. Ferris Bueller was a character designed to be someone who could handle anything and everything. He was confident in himself, didn't overthink things, and was completely unapologetic in the way he wanted to live his life. He was someone everyone liked, except for his sister and his principal, and that everyone wanted to be like. He was the idol of the teen boy in the 1980s. Has there been an iconic teenage high school boy before Ferris Bueller? I would say not to the scale that Ferris Bueller was. And in fact, I think Ferris Bueller was an inspiration for characters like Van Wilder or really any Ryan Reynolds type character. Even Green Lantern? Oh, uh, maybe not that one. Oh, I'm sorry, I, did I disappoint you? I materialized a racetrack out of pure energy saving hundreds of people and, and you're disappointed. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. 
I think a good point to make, too, is the original way the film was made. The script only had one draft, and the edits to the script were made during the editing of the film, which was easy since the events of the film only take place over a single day. So all the characters were wearing the same outfit throughout most of the film. Yeah. Also, a fun little point in that aspect is the parade scene, which was filmed in the middle of an actual parade. Hughes said that the cast and crew inserted their own float into the lineup without getting any kind of approval. And the people in the crowd and the reviewing stand were just regular people, not extras or actors, and they were genuinely confused. The last point to make for Ferris Bueller is the breaking of the fourth wall. Throughout the film, Ferris Bueller talks directly to the audience, offering up advice or information on his friends. He even shoos the audience away at the end of the film. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. In fact, Matthew Broderick was hesitant to do the movie at first because of the fourth wall breaking in the script. This was because he had just done two plays, Brighton Beach Memoirs and Biloxi Blues, which also talked to the audience in the same way. There were also movies like Lady Hawk and Annie Hall where characters break the fourth wall and speak directly to the audience. So in this way, Ferris Bueller is not original. But I would at least argue it was the original one to set the standard to how fourth wall breaking should be done and went on to be a good standard for future films like Deadpool. Fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break. That's like 16 walls. Well, you've made some really good points, but the real question remains, is Ferris Bueller's Day Off more original than Ghostbusters? Uh, it's really hard to say. Both of these films are original ideas and original films. Ferris Bueller has great original characters and an original story. However, Ghostbusters also has great original characters and story, but also creates an original world with original devices and an original and unique interpretations of the paranormal. I have to agree. That means the first point for originality goes to... Ghostbusters. Let's show this prehistoric how we do things downtown. Let's see if Ferris Bueller can take a point in the next category, soundtrack. Come on, Ferris Bueller's Day Off has a fantastic soundtrack. We talked about the iconic parade scene earlier, but let me talk about the music now. We can still visualize Ferris atop that float in the German-American parade singing Dankeschön by Wayne Newton. But was that all we remember about the parade? Of course not. What do you think Ferris is gonna do? It's gonna be a fry cook on Venus. I still watch that scene and want to stand up and dance and sing. It's exciting and that's what a soundtrack is supposed to do for audience members. Each song was used so perfectly to highlight different moments from the movie, from the Art Institute of Chicago scene and the use of Please, 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 Let Me Get What I Want by the Dream Academy, and Oh Yeah by Yellow as Ferris and Cameron check out the Ferrari. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT, California. Less than 100 were made. 
father spent three years restoring this car. It is his love. It is his passion. It is his fault he didn't lock the garage. The soundtrack has variety and is very well thought out. However, none of these songs are original songs made for the film. In fact, there are scores in the film used from other films and TV shows, including Star Wars and I Dream of Genie. The original score itself is good and sets the tone for the movie in certain areas, but isn't memorable in any sense. The most iconic songs were all previously written songs and material, including the 1982 song March of the Swivelheads by English Beat, which was featured in the famous running home scene where Ferris tries to beat his sister home before he gets caught. Ghostbusters had a similar fashion of soundtrack. The score itself was good. It set the tone for major moments like the final battle and theme for Sigourney Weaver's character. However, it was the song choices in the film that really make up the bulk of the soundtrack. Unlike Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ghostbusters has original songs produced for the film. Of course, we know the most iconic song of all. Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. is so iconic and popular that even people who have never seen the film know the song. It's even considered a classic Halloween song. Alongside the main theme song was also the song Cleaning Up the Town by the Busboys, which was played when the Ghostbusters received their first ever call to exterminate a ghost. Other songs on the album first appeared on the Ghostbusters soundtrack, including I Can't Wait Forever by Air Supply. I didn't realize Ghostbusters had so many songs that first appeared on the soundtrack and were actually written for the movie. I only knew of the main theme song. Yeah, unfortunately, it puts Ferris Bueller at a big disadvantage here since none of the songs in Ferris Bueller were original. Okay, okay. But I would argue that if people had to choose between listening to the overall soundtrack between the two movies... Ferris Bueller has more interesting and fun songs to listen to. Even though they were not original, more people know them. Yeah, but do they know them because of Ferris Bueller's Day Off or just because they were already popular songs? I would say it's an even split between the songs in the film. Some were already famous and some became famous because of Ferris. Hmm. Okay, so this is... a. Uh... More difficult than I thought it would be. I think the biggest argument for Ghostbusters is the main theme song. It is such an iconic song and is iconic whether you've seen the movie or not. The soundtrack for Ferris Bueller is really great, but if somebody didn't see the movie, they would just know those songs as already popular pop songs. If anything, those songs help the movie more than the movie helped those songs. Eh, most of them anyway. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but I think you're right. It's really hard to beat the pop culture influence of the Ghostbusters theme song. Which means the point for soundtrack goes to Ghostbusters. Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! Well, it's not looking too good for uh, Ferris Bueller here. Well, there are still two more categories left. Let's see if Ferris Bueller can make a comeback in our next category, which is Moral Lesson Value. 
Ghostbusters has several moments with a really positive moral message and life lesson. The entire movie centers around three professors who were fired from their university jobs for going after what they believed in. Now, losing your job and tenure at a university can be devastating. Or, so I've heard. You've lost your income, and you've lost your credibility. However, Dr. Venkman refuses to get down on himself. For whatever reason, Ray, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose? To go into business for ourselves. I think everyone in their life has had a moment of disappointment, whether it be losing a job or an opportunity that you thought was going to be your next big thing. However, Ghostbusters taught us that when one door closes, another one opens. It's just a matter of walking through the door. I'd say it worked out pretty well for the Ghostbusters. Optimism gets the Ghostbusters through their worst moments, including crossing the streams of their proton packs to defeat the giant Mr. Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and the evil Gozer at the risk of catastrophic results. I have a radical idea. The door swings both ways. We could reverse the particle flow through the gate. How? We'll cross the streams. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Cross the streams. You're going to endanger us. You're going to endanger our client, the nice lady who paid us in advance before she became a dog. A great moral value of Ghostbusters isn't just to be optimistic. It's also about knowing your worth as you start your own company. Anyone with a small business knows the struggle of finding the right price for your product and services. So once you know your worth, it's good to stand by it. Just like the Ghostbusters did after their first job when the hotel manager did not want to pay $5,000 for the removal of their ghost. We're going to have to ask you for four big ones, $4,000 for that. But we are having a special this week on proton charging and storage of the beast. And that's only going to come to $1,000, fortunately. $5,000? I had no idea to be so much. I won't pay it. Well, that's all right. We can just put it right back in there. Thank no, you. No, we certainly can, no, Dr. Beckman. No, no, no. I wouldn't want the Slimer ghost back in my hotel either. Think about the cleaning bill. Yeah. Throughout Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris speaks directly to the audience and often offers up some great life advice. They are lessons that can get us through everyday life. And no, I'm not talking about faking out your parents by licking your palms to appear sick. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good nonspecific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. A lot of people will tell you that a good phony fever is a deadlock, but uh, you get a nervous mother, you could wind up in a doctor's office. That's worse than school. You fake a stomach cramp, and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then so is high school. The overall story at its face value is all about seizing the day and taking every opportunity to just go out and enjoy what life has to offer you. Very little of Ferris's day was planned. He and his friends went out and enjoyed any opportunity that came their way. And one day, Ferris did what the average person maybe gets the chance to do in an entire week or even a month, maybe even a year. This is all summed up in one of the most notable quotes of any 80s movie. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. In our busy, everyday lives, things are all about go, go, go and get things done right now. But that isn't what life is about. And Ferris reminds us to stop 
and take a look around. A personal favorite life lesson from Ferris is about believing in yourself. He is a person of great confidence, and confidence can take anyone a long way. Not that I condone fascism, or any ism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism, he should believe in himself. I quote John Lennon, I don't believe in Beatles, I just believe in me. A good point there. After all, he was the walrus. Believe in yourself. What more can I say? However, as cool and confident as Ferris is, he isn't the main life lesson to be learned here. It's his best friend, Cameron Fry. Though Ferris is the title character, he is the same character at the beginning of the film as he is in the end. Cameron is the only character with a transformational arc. When we first see Cameron in the film, he is at his house in the middle of the woods. His parents aren't home, and he is buried under all his cover, suffering from a multitude of psychosomatic issues. Ferris convinces Cameron to get out of the house and pick Ferris up, but not before Cameron fights himself in the car about going. keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He'll make me feel guilty. This is, uh, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, with, I'll go. I think we've all been Cameron in our car convincing ourselves to go to work. As we've spoken about earlier, Ferris even convinces Cameron to steal the Ferrari, a prized possession of Cameron's father. Throughout the day, Cameron is forced to face his fears and be a part of situations he would never normally find himself in. Most of his anxiety comes from the fear of his father and the poor relationship they are implied to have off screen. His father is a phantom that haunts every decision Cameron makes in the film. His fears about health and life and even college are rampant and control him. In the end, he strips himself of this fear. He does this by running up the miles on his father's Ferrari and then accidentally kicking it out of the window. But still, he's free. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was more than just about being confident and seizing the day. It was about not letting your anxiety and daily fears control you. It was more than just being optimistic. It was about shaping your own destiny and taking control of your life. Well, it sounds like Ferris Bueller isn't out of the running just yet. No way! Ferris is back in the game as Ferris Bueller's Day Off takes the point for moral value and lessons learned. Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. We have one last category left, and right now, Ghostbusters is in the lead with two points to one for Ferris Bueller. If Ferris Bueller can win the next category, it will be a tie and the game will go into a sudden death round where the winner will take all. But let's see what happens as we dive into the final round, cast ensemble performance. Ferris Bueller's Day Off saw a large variety of actors and actresses that each brought something unique to their character. Besides the main three teenagers, which I'll discuss in a moment, Jeffrey Jones's performance as Ed Rooney was the perfect villain to the story as he hunts down those rebellious teenagers and lands in his own funky mess. So far this semester, he has been absent nine times. Nine times? Nine times. I don't remember him being sick nine times. That's probably because he wasn't sick. He was skipping school. Additionally, Ferris's parents were the perfect on-screen couple. So perfect, in fact, they ended up getting married in real life. Unfortunately, they got divorced six years later. 
You also can't have a rebellious teenage boy without the goody-two-shoes sister. And who better to play the angry, vengeful sister than Jennifer Grey as Jeannie Bueller? Behind the scenes, though, she was not the straight-laced daughter, but the rebellious actress, as she actually snuck onto the set of the parade scene on her day off after feeling she wasn't having enough fun. At least she got to have one fun scene with her cameo partner, Charlie Sheen. In fact, Jennifer Grey says that most of that scene in the police station was completely improvised. And on top of that, Jennifer Grey is the one who recommended a then lesser known Charlie Sheen as the bad boy facing drug charges. Little did she know Charlie Sheen would actually become that bad boy and face drug charges in 1995. And your problem is you. Excuse me? Excuse you. You ought to spend a little more time dealing with yourself. A little less time worrying about what your brother does. That's just an opinion. Mm. What are you, a psychiatrist? No. Why don't you keep your opinions to yourself? And of course, we can't forget about Ben Stein's famous cameo in the film. In an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, past the, anyone, anyone, Fun fact here, the entire scene was unscripted and Ben Stein was just told to start speaking about economics. Finally, let's get to our main three characters, played by Matthew Broderick, Alan Ruck, and Mia Sarah. Matthew Broderick and Alan Ruck were already very familiar with each other, as they had starred alongside each other on Broadway in 1985 in Neil Simon's Tony Award-winning show, Biloxi Blues. They were already good friends, and their dynamic on screen is perfect as they play off each other as polar opposite characters. They have remained friends throughout the years. Mia Sarah was cast as Ferris Bueller's girlfriend Sloane Peterson, and Mia Sarah was completely smitten with Matthew Broderick while filming. However, Matthew had eyes for someone else. His sister. No, 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 no. I, I mean his on-screen sister, Jennifer Grey. In fact, Matthew Broderick and Jennifer Grey even got engaged while filming. Sarah even admits throwing herself at Broderick several times, unaware of the romance between him and Grey. But Broderick respectfully turned her down. However, it still did not stop the natural way Ferris and Sloan interacted with each other. The three played the characters so well that it was clear on screen that the characters had known each other for years and were very close. Let's talk about the cast ensemble for Ghostbusters. First, let's talk about how this movie did not pull any punches in its casting. We have Saturday Night Live alumni and original cast members Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, who team up with the late Harold Ramis and Ernie Hudson to take on paranormal activity in comedic proportions never seen before. Now, being that Murray and Aykroyd were sketch players together on SNL, they already came equipped with some great levels of comedic chemistry. Nevertheless, this never took away from Ramis and Hudson, who created their own identities within the group. It was decided early on that Ramis's character would be the brains of the Ghostbusters, Aykroyd's the heart, Murray's the mouth, and Hudson's sort of a military veteran although that doesn't really get fleshed out in the final film. Apparently, Hudson's character had, in an earlier version of the script, a larger role as an Air Force demolitions expert with an elaborate backstory. They were, of course, joined by Sigourney Weaver, Rick Moranis, and Annie Potts. And, as of today, the original Ghostbusters cast remain one of the most iconic teams in cinema history. 
So iconic, in fact, that their 2021 return alongside the late Harold Ramis had audiences sniffling and also beaming with the best feelings of nostalgia. Side opinion. If any big franchise from the past wants to make a return using original characters, then look no further than 2021's Ghostbusters Afterlife for a masterclass in how it's done. But I digress. Back to the movie at hand, and the original Ghostbusters cast. Believe it or not, the cast we got was not necessarily the first choice. Like with many movies, a lot of actors are considered for various roles before the final casting is decided upon. Such alternate names that were considered included... Michael Keaton, Chevy Chase, Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, Christopher Walken, Eddie Murphy, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd, and Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> now, as much fun as the movie could have been with these performers, I think we can all agree that it just wouldn't be the same. The Ghostbusters cast that we got was the one that we needed. In fact, they worked so well together that they gave us such an iconic product with a very short production schedule, meaning there was often only time for a few takes, and in those few takes, they even improvised. Okay, so we have two great casts, but which one takes this point? The competition was tough. Perhaps even a little... strange? You're right. And do you know what we do when there's something strange in the neighborhood? Call the Ghostbusters! Meaning that the Ghostbusters takes the point for Best Ensemble Cast. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria! Well, that concludes our first game for Season 2. Final score is Ghostbusters with three points while Ferris Bueller's Day Off has one. Meaning, Ghostbusters takes it. Unfortunately, this will be the end of the road for Ferris Bueller, which is so disappointing. I was hoping my wildcard pick would make it a little further. Oh well, it's the luck of the draw, I suppose. In our next game, we will see Back to the Future take on Return of the Jedi. Thank you so much, everyone, for stopping by our podcast and getting excited for Season 2. And also, thank you for listening. Don't miss out on our future games and tournaments. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review, if available through your podcast provider. The Nerd Coliseum is available wherever you podcast. You can listen to us through your web browser or find a link to your favorite podcast provider at www.anchor.fm slash the Nerd Coliseum. Please help spread the word about this podcast. Follow and share us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you'd like to see a certain matchup go down in the Nerd Coliseum, let us know. Anything from movies, TV, video games, or pop culture can battle it out. Talk to us by emailing thenerdcoliseum at gmail.com. Coliseum is spelled as in the Roman Coliseum, which is C-O-L-O-S-S-E-U-M. And if there is a convention or event that you think we should attend, let us know at that same email address. We'd love to see you there and hear what movies you want to battle it out with. I'm Frankie. And I'm Kristen. That's all for now. Bye-bye. Okay, post post bloopers, Frankie. This is the post bloopers. Post bloopers. My voice is like... Not like a smoker. Yeah, I remember when Richard Nixon was president. <laughs> Nixon, Richard Nixon should have got a second toy. <laughs> he was cheated.
It was the damn Kennedys and their conspiracy <laughs> against him. You think that's going to make the bloopers? Probably. Because <laughs> we're going to do the rest of this so perfectly that right. there's not going to be That's going to be the only else. blooper we need. <sighs> Turn more my voice. I don't think that's going to do it. All right. All right, Frankie, as you're recording, here we go. Now is where this recording starts. Right here. No further. Now. <laughs> this is it. And action. Is it further or farther? It's further, right? Further. further. I would yeah. say further. Yeah, it is. All right, restarting. So for real this time, Frankie, here we go. Oh, this is going to be fun. Already. Was that good? I think so. Why? Uh, just making sure I gotta drink my whiskey in between oh, dates. Jesus. <clears throat> Thank you for your patience as we took a month of... Here we go. <laughs> this highest grossing list is only from the... Ooh. So stupid. Ooh. <laughs> excellent. Ooh. <laughs> the film follows three parasitic... I got this in read through and now I'm messing it up. <laughs> The film follows three parapsychological. It may or yeah. Let's take a little. Gotta drink a whiskey, whiskey. whiskey. Gotta take a whiskey break. I just have soda. <laughs> no, Domino's. I don't want your pizza today. We always. I know. Singing donk. <clears throat> By the Bus Boys. <laughs> However, none of these songs are original song. I didn't realize Ghostbusters had so many songs that appeared. Inclu including that one. Yes. That one's called Messing Up the Town <laughs> by SpongeBob. Jeez. Well, there is. It's there are, right? There. there. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> Nerd! Now, losing your job and tenure at a university can be stavis- Jesus. Can be stivastating. Can be stivastating. <laughs> Mike Tyson, everyone! I used to work at a university. <laughs> <laughs> I have a PhD. <laughs> my mama said- That's my what I was thinking. <laughs> you wrong, Colonel Sanders! <laughs> As opposed to going down on yourself. I feel like I sound like Casey Kasem when I said that. Dr. Renton refuses to get down on himself. <laughs> in a letter. All right. He is a person of great confidence, and confidence can take you any... Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. <laughs> Additionally, Ferris's parents were the perfect on-screen couple. Couple. Said that weird. And if you'd like to see a certain matchup go down on the nerd. <laughs> You're still here? It's over. Switch to another episode. Go.
That's more like Ace Ventura. <laughs> than it is. Chicago. <laughs> and that's a wrap.